this morning. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. As I considered what to do, Adam came to me and said, Hey, Jacob, do you want to preach all of uh, July? Absolutely, I do. I love that. Uh, and I wanted to do something um, connected to an extent, um, not just random sermons, but try to do something a little um, consistent. And as I considered what to do this month of sermons, I realized, you know, lately most of my sermons have been from the Old Testament. And I felt convicted to preach from the New Testament for this little series. And so naturally, I picked Hebrews, one of the most Old Testament-focused books of the New Testament. Uh, you know, it feels a little like cheating, but I'm not the one who put it in the New Testament. So take it up with, take it up with the boss, not with me. Uh, the book of Hebrews is a beautiful book in all seriousness. Uh, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible, and one of the most intriguing and challenging as well. Uh, the late, great Dr. R.C. Sproul has said, uh, what I love about Hebrews is if there's any book that brings together the whole counsel of God together in one place, it's this book. The book of Hebrews gives us one of the most magnificent, if not the most magnificent, portrait of Christ that we find anywhere in Scripture. And I have found that to be true in my own reading and studying it as well. We won't have time to do the whole book, unfortunately, but I, I do want to pick out some of my favorite passages and what I consider some of the most important passages in the book and work through them together over this month. And we'll start, as is fitting, at the beginning of the book. And so I'm going to read for us Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then we'll pray together. Hear now the word of the Lord. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've spoken. We thank you for this book of Hebrews and what you've done in ages past. We pray that you would be with us as we consider it this morning. Be with me as I preach. Uh, give me words to speak that are edifying and encouraging, convicting and challenging. Lord, may we all be built up in the knowledge of Christ. May we all attain mature uh, uh, stature in him. pray that you do that now by your Holy Spirit as we work through this passage together. Christ's name, amen. Even here at, at the start, the beauty and glory on display in this book is incredible. I love it. I love the way the author opens up. And from the very start, the author is doing what he'll continue to do throughout this whole book, weaving together the Old and New Testaments and focusing uh, on the true center of them both, Christ. And in just four short verses, he gives us an incredible summation of God's work in the Old Testament, Christ's person and work that serves as a bedrock of our understanding of scripture and through it all he introduces us to one of the key themes of the entire book that would be a scarlet thread running throughout the supremacy of christ overall that christ is better it's an incredible introduction and i want us to spend time considering it together and what all it means for us this morning diving into it together uh, my theme this morning, uh, Adam called me this week and asked how the sermon was going. I was like, it's going okay. And, this is, and talked to him a little bit about things I was struggling with, trying to figure it all out. And um, 
I said, what's your theme? And I was like, honestly, I don't know. It's a, it's a little scattershot. And he was very helpful in helping me nail down a theme. And my theme this morning is the Lord gives us what we need. And what we need most is Christ supreme overall. And we'll see that this morning as we look at the revelation of God and the roles of Christ. Two-point sermon. I know it's a little little weird. Um, I, I wanted to go for a third one, but uh, time would fail. So in mercy and grace, I decided two points for today. Uh, there's a lot here in these verses. They're very dense. And so we're going to look at the revelation of God and the roles of Christ. Uh, firstly, the revelation of God. The author first begins with the memorable line. I love it. Uh, long ago and many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in his last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Does it ever strike you that God is a speaking God? I mean, it should, right? It should amaze us. Uh, God didn't have to speak. Uh, he didn't have to give us his word, and yet he has spoken. And that is stunning and ought to cause us to rejoice. And, and most of us here are in relationship, have been in relationships. We know when someone we love, be it a partner, a husband, wife, child, when someone we love is not speaking to us, things aren't good in that relationship. That's not a good sign. And yet God is a speaking God. And that should cause us to rejoice. Because had he not spoken, what could we, we really know about him or life or anything, really? I love using silly, silly illustrations and analogies when I'm teaching at school to try to make uh, points stick better, something a little bit more memorable. And one of my favorite uh, analogies that I use in Old Testament and apologetics as well, uh, discussing this very idea, idea, involves my favorite dinosaur, the Velociraptor. I don't know if you know this, but there is a velociraptor in this room right now. It's a lot less screams than I thought would happen. Well, why isn't everyone freaking out? I mean, oh, right, I have to clarify. There is a velociraptor in this room, but you can't see it. You can't smell it. You can't hear it or touch it or anything. It, it doesn't exist as a physical being. And yet the only way you and I can experience something is with our physical senses. That's how we learn. And so what could you possibly know about this velociraptor? Does it have feathers? Does it have green scales or brown scales? How many teeth does it have? All of these are pointless questions because you can know nothing about it because you cannot experience it. You can really know nothing about it or anything involving it. Now let's say this invisible uh, velociraptor were to pop into physical reality. It reveals itself and takes a bite out of Pastor Adam. Only then could you know something about this velociraptor. Only then could you tell others about this thing. You could say how many teeth it had. Adam would have a great view. He could tell you exactly how many teeth. He feels them. You could tell me about its scales. You could tell me about its size. You could tell me all about it. But until that point, until it reveals itself, we don't have anything. And it's silly to even speak of it. Of course, the point of the analogy is we can know nothing about God unless he reveals himself to us, unless he is a speaking God. To have a silent God is to have no God at all, really. Just as none of you freaked out or uh, believed me when I said there was a velociraptor in this room, uh, I don't really seriously believe that, by the way. Uh, but if I did, you'd be quite right to get me to a neurologist uh, because it's silly. An intangible velociraptor that you can't know anything about is the same as no velociraptor at all. 
an unrevealed silent God is the same as no God at all. But to have a speaking God who reveals himself and lets people experience him and learn of him is to have truth itself. And that's what the author of Hebrews says God has done. He has spoken. And so we're not left in the dark wondering, is God good? Does God love me? Does God care about evil? Is God going to judge the wickedness in the world? How does God want me to live? What should I do in this situation or that situation? Or the millions of other questions that come up when we consider faith and life. Were God a silent God, none of those questions, or any other questions really, would have any answers. We cannot know. Knowledge itself would fold, and all we'd be left with is personal preference. Just do whatever you feel like because there is no truth to be had and there is no God to be known. And while there is a perverse freedom in that, it is epistemological suicide. Without a God as a foundation for truth, there truly is no truth. And that is where many live in our culture today. Where there is no truth, where there is no source of truth, there is no truth. And when there is no truth, there is no um, guidance, direction. Simply, whatever floats your boat is what you should do. Be it chewing gum or cannibalism, there's no appreciable difference. When you're deprived of all your senses, there's really no discernible or appreciable difference between your bedroom and the sanctuary. If you couldn't see or hear or smell or taste or feel, if you were locked in a void, so to speak, there is no difference between here, sanctuary, a volcano, nothing. Everything fades away to nothingness and nihilism. But that's not the God we serve. The God we serve has spoken. He has not left us without a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And the words he has spoken and the ways he has revealed himself are not lost, but preserved for us by God the Spirit in his word. Uh, we'll get to it in a couple of weeks, but one of my favorite parts of this book, uh, the author of Hebrews is quoting David, one of David's psalms, but he doesn't say David as David says. He says, as the Holy Spirit says. But this word is not just men's word. This is the Spirit's word. God has spoken in the past and preserved his revelation for us in his word. And the author reminds us that not only has God spoken, his revelation is preserved in both the Old Testament and the New. Both are his revelation of himself to us. And while there's a difference in means and recipients, as he says, various times and various ways, by the prophets and by his son, the author of Hebrews says it's the same God speaking in both. The author of Hebrews isn't setting out to denigrate or abrogate the Old Testament, but rather to show both Testaments have the same message because they are both the word of the same God. There's a temptation for us as Christians to ignore or downplay the Old Testament. I recently saw a friend post on Facebook something a, a little extreme along those lines, and he said, uh, the God of the Old Testament and Jesus are not the same. The God of the Old Testament was a bloodthirsty, egotistical, racist, control freak. Jesus was a wise and loving Buddha. And this mindset is not just the mindset of one man. We see it all over. Throughout church history, one of the earlier heresies the church dealt with came from a man named Marcion who said very similar things to what this person on Facebook said. The Old Testament God is evil and mean and 
racist and petty. But Jesus, good and kind and loving. While those are extreme examples that we may reject, the same mindset can infiltrate our hearts and minds in more subtle ways. And we'll get into that as we go through it and see it. But the author of Hebrews says right at the start here, no. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God speaking. There is no contradiction in his character or nature. And part of what the author is going to do in this book, again, as we'll see, is show how the Old Testament points to Christ and use the Old Testament to encourage us as Christians today. And it flows throughout this whole book all the way. He's constantly referencing the Old Testament, using the Old Testament to build his argument to show how wonderful and beautiful Jesus is, showing that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as he says at the end of the book. Um, God does not change, and both testaments are his revelation. But practically, what does that mean for us? Well, it means we have answers. In a world seeking for truth, in a world seeking for some solid foundation, we have the only true and solid foundation there is. We have truth itself because we have the words of the source of all truth. Do you want to know who God is? Well, he has spoken. Do you want to know if God loves you? He has spoken. Do you want to know how to live your life the way you're supposed to? Do you want to know what is right and wrong and good and evil? Our Lord has spoken to us, and we have his word and his commands and desires and revealing his character and nature to us. He hasn't spoken in in inscrutable ways that are impossible or difficult to understand. He hasn't spoken with a voice so loud as to break our eardrums and leave us deaf. He has gotten down on our level and spoken to us in ways we can understand and digest so that we can know him, so that we might love him. What a treasure this is. What a joy and delight. What a comfort to have the whole counsel of God. What a heavy responsibility we have to study and know his word. To dive in and hear his voice in the scriptures. And what a responsibility we have to proclaim and stand on this truth. There is in some, and myself at times, a kind of cowardice that masquerades as humility. It's a hesitancy to speak on issues um, because what do I know? Who am I to speak to this thing. I'm not learned. I'm not eloquent. I'm not perfect. How can I speak against sinful anger when I struggle with the same thing? How can I speak against homosexuality when I've never experienced that struggle? How can I speak on the proper way to care for the poor when I don't have education or credentials? How can I speak on parenting when I don't have kids? And this is true in a way. We might feel this at times when we think about how to speak to different areas and our own lack of of wisdom, our own lack of experience, our own ignorance and sin. Um, It is true in a way. We are sinners. We are ignorant. We are unwise. And so we need to approach these issues with gentleness and humility. But God has spoken and is not silent on these and many other issues. And he is not sinful or ignorant or unwise. At least I hope we wouldn't say he is. And so we can speak into issues not with our own non-existent authority or our own experience, but the, uh, with the authority the prophets had when they proclaimed, Thus saith the Lord. Brothers and sisters, our God has spoken. 
We ought to read his words, to learn of him and from him in in the Old and New Testament, to apply wisdom and knowledge to our lives and faith and proclaim this truth to a world that is so desperately in need of it. What a delight it is that God is a speaking God. What a joy that he's not, he doesn't give us the cold shoulder, but speaks, tells us who he is, tells us what he wants, tells us how much he loves us, compliments us and loves us and delights in us. God has spoken. That's the very first point the author of Hebrews brings up, reminding us that both these Old and New Testaments are God's spoken word. But the next question he's going to bring up and start addressing is, how do these two testaments go together? What's the linchpin that holds them together? There's a differentiation. They are distinct. But how are they similar? What joins them? The author of Hebrews is going to spend the whole book showing that Christ is the center of both. And he goes on to lay the groundwork for that discussion in this passage by focusing on the roles of Christ. The author gives an incredible overview of who Christ is and what he has done, but he does it using Old Testament categories. In the Old Testament, God had given to men three offices or roles that he used to lead and guide his people. You might remember some of them or know them. There were prophets who spoke God's message to the people. Uh, There were the kings who were supposed to protect and provide for the people and for the well-being of the people, though often they didn't. And there were priests who were supposed to mediate between the people and God, offering prayer and making purification for sins. And the author, uh, author of Hebrews sees these three offices in the Old Testament, and he says, that's a picture of what Christ would do, a shadow of, what, of who Christ would be. And he draws those connections here, pointing out how, just as the Old Testament had three offices, the New Testament does too, but now they're all fulfilled in Christ, who is supreme and better. First, let's look at the role of prophet. The author sets the prophets and Christ up as the means by which God has spoken. We saw that in the first verse. Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He's equating the two and showing that Christ fulfilled the same role that these men did. Christ fulfilled the same role as the prophets. Prophets, you may know, were God's mouthpieces. Uh, While the Old Testament is full of God appearing in incredible ways, when we consider the time scale and the actual frequency when God appears and speaks to all the people of Israel, what we find is that life for the ordinary, everyday Israelite wouldn't have been much different than our own, apart from air conditioning and cars and all the the niceties of modern living. Um, But as far as working, sleeping having time with family, eating, cooking. It wasn't just steeped in supernatural craziness. It was pretty mundane for the most part. God wasn't just constantly thundering down from the sky in an audible voice for everyone, though that does happen in the Old Testament, absolutely. But instead, we see people went about their lives, and God mostly used certain men to spread his word and message among the people. And this is prophets. When we think of prophecy, we often think of telling the future, or foretelling. And that certainly is part of it at times. Uh, But more properly, prophecy was about telling 
others the message God had given the prophet. Sometimes that was warnings of future judgment or future or promises of future blessings. Sometimes it was encouragement in present struggles. Sometimes it was laws and commands. Sometimes it was reminders of God's character and works. It wasn't always foretelling, but more properly, it's forth-telling. Telling forth God's message and character and works and promises. And when we look at Christ, we see very much the same thing. Christ did give warnings of future judgment and promises of future blessings. Christ talked about hell more than any other prophet. And he also talked about the future when he returns and the, king, uh, and the kingdom uh, comes. But obviously he didn't just talk about the future. He revealed God's character and love and kindness and justice and commands. We often think of Jesus as Savior, and that's certainly true and right to think of him foremostly as that. Uh, but most of his ministry on earth was concerned with preaching, with telling people God's revelation, bringing God's word and message to his people. Christ was a prophet in his words, but not just his words. Unlike the prophets before him, Christ was a prophet by his very being and nature, an ontological prophet. We see this expounded upon in verse 3. I love verse 3, where the author says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Nowhere the prophet can make this claim. Not murderous Moses, not mopey Elijah, uh, not terrified Isaiah, or uh, even the greatest man ever born of a woman, John the Baptist, a prophet, but a doubter, and just a sinful man at the end, though a great man. All other prophets were sinful men used by a good God to reveal himself, but Christ is a prophet by his very nature. He's the radiance of the glory of God. I love that imagery radiance or emanation or brightness and and the picture is that the glory of god the sum of all his perfections and character and nature the beautiful fullness of god the glory of god is the sun but christ is the sunbeam that communicates the warmth and beauty of the sun to the earth he communicates it it's a radiance it's his um, shedding forth of god's nature in christ but just by Being who he is, he was radiating out God's glory and character, revealing him. And Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature. He's not merely a man. He is the God-man, very man and very uh, God, both and. To know Christ is to know the Father, because they are one. So much so that when the disciples ask Christ to show us the Father, if you remember in the book of John, Christ gets disappointed in his disciples, he gets upset with him. And he says, don't you get it yet? Essentially, this is not a quote. This is a, this is a Jacob paraphrase, Jacob's standard version. Don't you get it yet? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because Christ not only revealed God in his words, but his very nature and being were God's own. To see him was to see the Father, because they are one. He's the perfect prophet, not just a prophet who comes with word, but a prophet who reveals God's message, tells forth God's glory just by being who he is. The fullness of what every prophet ever pointed to and pictured in small, imperfect ways. He's a prophet. Not only is he a prophet fulfilling that Old Testament role, we know Christ is a king. 
not simply a king, but doubly a king. Christ is the human king, the son of David, who was given the throne over all the earth and universe by the Father. We see that in verse 2. The author says there, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. Christ is appointed by God to be the heir to the throne over all, to sit on high and rule and reign over all tribes and nations and people and everything. As a human being, as I mentioned, He earns this throne by virtue of God's promises to David, um, God's granting Christ to have all things under his feet. It's appointed to him. And some people will point to verses like this and more in other books of the Bible, but similar verses. And they'll use these verses to try to prove Christ was just a man. They'll say, see, Christ was appointed as heir, meaning he wasn't always. He's not actually God. But this is silliness and blindness, uh, because as the author of Hebrews goes on to show, he's not trying to denigrate, denigrate Christ or deny his divinity, but rather lifting up Christ's full nature. He says, not only is he king because he's God, he's king because he's the man the Father has chosen to be king. He's a human king who's appointed the heir of all things. And he's obviously king in his divinity. He's the king over all things by virtue of being the creator of all things. Again, the very same verse, verse 2, right after, whom he appointed the heir of all things, unless we think that means that Christ is not God. We read, through whom also he created the world. That Christ was the one who created the world. And as its creator, he has absolute authority over it. It is his, and all creation owes its existence and its allegiance to Christ. And not only did he create it, we read in this passage, he continues to uphold it. Down in verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The image given here is a king in glory, power on a throne, giving a royal decree. Let the universe continue. He's upholding it, holding it together, keeping it running, providing and caring for it, making sure things go the way they ought to go. And also, this language here intentionally casts our minds back to the creation of the world in Genesis, where God was speaking, and the word, by the word of his power, the universe and all things in it were brought into existence. Again, intentionally casting our minds back to the Old Testament, pointing out the connections that Christ is king over all by his divinity, and he always has been. Christ is king, both in his humanity as the son of David lifted up to the heavenly throne and as God himself, the creator and sustainer of all things. But he rules over all, protecting his people, providing for his kingdom, not letting the gates of hell prevail against them. Just as the Old Testament kings were meant to do, though they often failed and were often an imperfect picture, all that they, pict- uh, um, all that they hinted at and did was a shadow of what Christ does now for us. He's a prophet, he's a king, and the last bit of this passage hits at the fact that Christ fulfills the final Old Testament office, uh, the priest. Christ is a priest. The issue of sin has plagued humanity since the garden. We sin and fall short and earn destruction and damnation because we don't live up to God's standards. 
We talked about this a little bit uh, a few weeks ago in Psalm 15. We are made to be with God, to be in his presence, but we cannot be in his presence as sinners. We would be consumed and destroyed by his holiness. As I was preparing, I was reminded of the the recent tragedy um, of the Titan sub, the sub going down to uh, the Titanic and the the awful deaths of those in that sub. And the thought of that kind of death has kind of just gripped me and terrified me. Um, To go deep into the ocean, you must have uh, protection because the pressure would crush you, would destroy you. And unfortunately, tragically, their protection failed. The sub failed. And before their minds could process it, they were crushed and destroyed. It's terrifying to me to think about the instantaneous nature of it, the inevitability of it, the inability to do anything. And I was reminded that I was preaching, trying to come up with an example, trying to think of what it means to be sinners in the presence of God. If God were to come here this morning without our protection in Christ, if he were to come in his full glory, we would be crushed, destroyed, by the weight of his holiness. In an instant, without any possibility of stopping it, we would be consumed. But God isn't content to leave us without himself. He gives us what we need and makes a way for us to have our sin dealt with, to be brought into his presence, to have protection and cleansing. In the Old Testament, God gave the Levitical priesthood and tabernacle to point to Christ to come and sacramentally deal with sins through these types and shadows of the Messiah. And priests were appointed to make purification of sins for the people, facilitate a right relationship between God and his people. But the tabernacle and Levitical priesthood were not effective based on their own merits or abilities. As the author of Hebrews will say later, uh, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Instead, what they pointed to and joined with was the true purification of sin. When Christ took the sin of his people onto himself, he truly and really paid the price. He offered himself up, both the priest and the sacrifice, and did what all those priests only pictured at. He purified his people. And unlike the priests of the temple who never sat but made offerings constantly and were never finished, we read in verse 3, After making purification for sins, he sat down. It's done. It's finished, like he said. There is no more. As the author of Hebrews will say later in chapter 10, and every priest stands daily, every Levitical priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. At the right hand of God. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Yeah, what the author of Hebrews is already doing, setting up, saying, Levitical priesthood was a good thing. We'll get to that. It was a good thing for its time. But Christ is better. All these years of sacrifice, mountains of animal carcasses, rivers of animal blood, over and over and over and over again. So much sacrifice for centuries, and none of it could deal with a single sin. But Christ, it's so worthy, so supreme, so valuable that a single sacrifice of himself deals with sin 
really and fully. He is the true priest who deals with sin and gives us right standing and fellowship with God. The author of Hebrews' main theme for his work is that Christ is supreme. He's better. He's everything that the Old Testament hinted at and everything we need. And he starts this argument by showing how Christ fulfills these three Old Testament roles. We need a prophet, someone to communicate the Lord to us and give us light and guidance. And Christ comes not only communicating God in his words, but communicating, radiating the glory of God by his very nature, which is the exact imprint of the Father's. We need a king, someone to protect and provide, and he gives us a double king, a human king who understands us and our weaknesses and can sympathize with us, and a divine king who has all wisdom and power and might and immortality who will never fail as our human kings often do. We need a priest, someone to make purification for our sins. We don't get a priest who offers empty sacrifices of animals, but a priest who gives himself out of love for his people. A priest who lays down his own life and offers his own body to be broken and his own blood to be shed so that we might enter into God's presence by the power of that single sacrifice. The author author of Hebrews looks at these Old Testament offices and says, those were good things, but Christ is better because he is the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, and the fullness of all the things those pointed to. Conclusion, God knows what we need. There's my theme. He knows we need revelation. We need to know who he is and what this world is and who we are and how to live and love in this world and who Christ is. He knows we need a foundation for knowledge and faith and life. And he graciously gives it to us. He speaks and preserves his word for us in the Old and New Testaments. We ought to seek his word and learn what he has revealed to apply it to our life and proclaim it to the world. We ought not shrink back in fear or faux humility. We we have knowledge. We have the truth of the Lord. And the Lord knows what we need most of all, which is Christ, supreme over all. And he reveals in his Old Testament these roles that painted a picture for our fathers and mothers long ago of the Messiah to come and who he would be and what he would do and now serve for us as a reminder and confirmation of his supreme value and worth. He is the supreme prophet the fullest revelation of God's character and nature and demands. He's the supreme king who reigns over this world and universe as the God-man and protects and provides for his people. He's the supreme priest who finally and fully deals with all our sin. The author opens this magnificent book with an incredibly dense first few verses. As I said, this was going to be a three-point sermon. I couldn't get that third point in time because there's so much here uh, worth diving into and, and, and digging into. Um... But even in what we've covered just in these first few verses, calls us to rejoice in Christ and who he is for us and what God has done for us. And this is merely the beginning, and the author is nowhere near done painting this beautiful picture of our Lord and Savior. And we'll continue our short meditation on that picture next Sunday, chapter 2. But for now, let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are a speaking God. Lord, that you have spoken to our fathers by the prophets and have spoken to us by your Son. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us without a lamp, without a light, wondering who you are, wondering what this world is, wondering who we are and what we're supposed to do and what we're supposed to be. And Lord, you've told us plainly, clearly, 
in all the New Testaments. You've revealed yourself to your servants. You've told us who we are, what this world is, and so, so much more. And we thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, work to create in us a greater love for your word, a greater reliance on it, a greater esteem of it. Or may it be our uh, our steadfast guide, our consolation. Lord, may we run to your word, not because we love old words on onion skin, but because we love the God who has spoken endless words. Lord, bless us in that. And we thank you for our Savior who is revealed in your word and the things that he has done and the offices he fulfills, Lord, the way he has revealed to us who you are, your kindness, your compassion, your justice, your wrath, and the ways that he has shown your character perfectly because he is God. So, Lord, we thank you for that, for him being our king, for him being our priest and making purification for sins. Lord, we pray that you would help us to cling to Christ, to delight in him, to rejoice in our, our Savior. Do these things by your spirit, in Christ's name, amen.